Well, let's get cracking. Just for everybody's benefit, please, if there's particular questions that crop up, um, ask as we go along. I can't take any credit for this idea whatsoever of uh, the international game. This is all Omar's um, very good thinking, obviously, with the international break coming along. Put hand up, interact. I think that's the thing that um, I think has been brilliant about Clubhouse um, generally in my experiences. And it'd be great to get some um, insights from everyone as we go along. But I think ultimately the, the, the stuff that you guys do generally at 21st Club Omar and the stuff that you write particular. I love sometimes, I know you did a brilliant piece early in this season about um, different structural and systemic changes that could be in particular domestic games. And I know that you've given some thought, obviously, to uh, this on the international scale. So before maybe we get into the blue sky thinking side of things as to what may change and different ideas, you know, I I think there's there's a first sort of um, current question, which is almost... Is the status quo today sort of acceptable? Not acceptable, but is it is it the best it could be? And, you know, international football looking back was very much seen as sort of the elite, the elite side of the game. But and obviously the World Cup being the sort of pinnacle to a degree, but games change, um, leagues prosper, Champions League possibly being the the the, the pinnacle for players um, to some degree. You know, wh- where are we and where where can we potentially go? Yeah, it's, um, I think we've kind of sli- um, sleepwalked to a, where international football is today. Um, and, and this is a function, yeah, this is going way back, but international football in a way almost reminds me a little bit of um, test cricket or um, to a lesser degree perhaps international rugby where you've got these kind of smattering of games that don't really have any wider context. And that you can understand that to a degree because actually that's, when the international game was first formed, it was you know in the Victorian era, and that was kind of how things happened. And as I say, we've not really had any radical changes since then. I was I was looking at as you do at the, the Wikipedia pages for the nineteen fifty four World Cup qualifying, and even back then they had international breaks in October, November, and the spring, and that's when teams when international teams played played each other. And and it's kind of mad to think that we're seventy years on from that. And we're still operating in the same way, even though the world has changed um, so much in that time. Um, but yeah, you, you're absolutely right that you know international football used to be seen as the elite. I, you know, I think certainly when I was younger, I think it used to be of the view that you had to win the World Cup to be regarded as the best player in the world or best, you know, have goat, potential goat status. Um, now I think it's very much a Champions League, and I don't think. You know, someone like Messi or Ronaldo are are discounted because they didn't win the World Cup or uh, or whatever. Um, so that's that's really changed. And um, you know, whether that's a symptom or a cause of kind of international football being um, put down, I, I, I think either way, it's it's a sign that you know the money that's in the club game kind of accelerates quality in the club game, and it means that you know the, the pinnacle of the of the game has changed. Um, the other aspects that used to be appealing about international football was friendlies, um, which is kind of hard to fathom today because most of us we just don't pay any attention to friendlies. I, I can't say I've watched an England friendly probably in a number of years now just because it doesn't interest me, a match that has no meaning and, and significance. But actually, if you went back 30, 40 years, friendlies were a great way of watching players who you had heard of but had never actually seen. Um, so Pele is kind of the obvious example, but there would have been a lot of players, you know, behind the Iron Curtain or playing in 
in leagues that weren't televised uh, within the UK or your own country. And so it was quite it was quite fascinating to watch these players who were almost like you know mythological figures that that came to life when they played your country. And then that was the appeal. That was the kind of connection that you'd have. Uh, but that just doesn't um, doesn't seem to be the case anymore because we we've got such great access to all the different leagues in, in the world. You know, if, if a kid is breaking through, seventeen year olds breaking through in Peru, we've heard about it within twenty minutes of them scoring their first goal. So you know, if they play at Wembley five years later, it's like, well, I've known about this player for for five years now, and it's just not as not as appealing. So. You know, that, that, that's kind of the, the landscape and the foundations that international football was built upon. Um, you know, being the pinnacle of the game, friendlies that brought different worlds um, together. Um, but that's, that's changed rapidly. Um, and so, you know, we need to, I think, bodies are beginning to think about solutions that, that might address that. Oh, Mark, I just one point there. Just you, you, it sprung something um, in my in my mind. Um, and Callum's obviously got his hand up. I'm going to come to you, Callum, shortly as well on on one particular point. But um, Omar, on on that bit, and you talk about globalization diminished relevance. Is it is could you exchange? Could you substitute um, globalization for television or internet? Yeah. I mean, in terms of then, what actually is happening is the novelty of the undiscovered. And we're talking decades ago, really. And the scarcity of live football has diminished to such an extent now that everyone knows everything about everyone. Um, and that's obviously a data point, um, a general data point. And does that mean then that international football, to a degree, needs to not reinvent itself, as we're talking about, but reinvigorate how it is consumed to, to enable people almost to fall in love with, I guess, the the the... The, the patriotism of nation, national competition? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, one of the selling points of international football in the past would have been the uniqueness of playing a, a different team, playing a Brazil, playing, a, uh, you know, an Asian team, an African team or whatever it was. Um, but now we've got, you know, the Premier League's full of Brazilian players, so they're not, that it's not as interesting. Um, and that is a function, as you say, of the internet, yeah. of more money in the game and, and so on. Um yeah, Callum, do you want to, uh, you had your hand raised? Um, the, the question I've got is a very straightforward one, and it's based on something that Arsene Wenger talked about recently. Um, one of the main reasons I think international football and its popularity has, has maybe dropped among younger generations is because the Champions League is seen as being probably the most elite competition in modern-day football, and it's every single year. So if you're a younger fan, you get to look forward to that every year, whereas the World Cup or the Euros is every four years. Arsene Wenger has proposed having a World Cup every two years. Is that something you think could rejuvenate the international football community in the eyes of young people, or do you think that leads to not seeming as important as it is because I have to say I love the World Cup I think it's fantastic I also love the Euros but there is that part of you that thinks could it be more often? Yeah it's, it's a really good question Dan I don't know if you've got a view on it because again it's one of those things that you know someone in 1930 um, probably decided oh four years is probably you know about right to have it again maybe because of financial constraints maybe because of whatever and the world has changed. I'm with you, Callum. I think um, the fact that a tournament is every four years, you know, it, it creates such scarcity around it. You look forward to it so much. Um, and I think the, 
the Euros being every kind of two years in between the World Cups helps kind of satiate you, but not kind of fulfil you in a way. I, I think it works as it is. I, I would be diff- I think I'd be different actually on the women's game, where I think actually an annual World Cup could help create more narrative, get more younger people interested, create that kind of continuity year on year, which women's football really needs. But I don't think men's football really needs that. The World Cups are so successful. I think what needs fixing is is the time in between. Uh, in between tournaments, I'm gonna um, Omar and Callum. Thanks for the, the the great question there. We'll just keep you up because I'm sure you'll have some great insights as well on some of the things that um, are being discussed. So I'm gonna just call up um, a fellow partner and and um, all round um, Northern Ireland fanatic um, Johnny Medill, who I work with on a daily basis. That Omar knows pretty well too. And um, yeah, I'd be interested in your thoughts, Johnny, on that generally and any um, any bits that um, Omar and Callum have touched on. Yeah, thanks, Dan. It's a really interesting discussion just around, I guess, where international football now is. And I think one of the things that was occurring to me when I was listening to you guys talking there was that one of the challenges that international football, I think, has is there is such a sphere of different perspectives based on what type of nation you are. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how for, for, for the average England fan, international football becomes quite stale very often. Now, if I put my Northern Ireland fan hat on, and I'm sure Callum can probably relate to where I'm coming from, you know, we've only ever qualified for three major tournaments ever. So I guess one of the questions which I think is really interesting is what is success for a nation in, in international football? For some nations, it's winning a World Cup or winning a major tournament. For other smaller nations, it's actually qualifying for a major tournament. Uh, you know, and, and if you think of what you know, what Scotland have enjoyed in, in the experience of qualifying for the Euros this summer, similar to what you know, the likes of Northern Ireland and, and Wales have enjoyed in recent years, I think that um, you know that experience is is quite unique and is something that that I think international football needs to keep. The challenge is how do you replicate that for? the tier one nations um, and also how do you replicate that for the even smaller tier three or four nations who realistically have have no chance in hell of getting to a major tournament I think one of the interesting um, things that no doubt you'll probably come on to is actually where the Nations League fits into all of this and I'm not sure whether you already covered it at the start you know as I understood it the Nations League was designed to replace meaningless friendlies uh, with actually meaningful games and I think it's actually been to some degree successful, but at the same time, I think that the wider point is how, how do you have a model that fits for the Englands of this world, the Scotlands and the Northern Irelands of this world, and then the sort of smaller nations again, I guess? It's a great point, Johnny. And um, I, I almost think sometimes me with my sort of England hat on, I, I can only speak firsthand for a good few years back now when um, yeah, you were you were getting very excited and rightly so at... Um, Northern Ireland's uh, um, time at the at the Euros, which was just um, yeah, was it the Euros or the World Cup? I'm I'm literally losing track now. It's uh, it was, I I can't believe you've forgotten that it was it was Euro twenty sixteen. I I I joke I joke, <laughs> um, but no, I completely agree on that. And I'm just bringing up Jonas as well, um, uh, just to give any thoughts from uh, from his perspective. And then I'm going to just turn back to to Omar to ask a couple of questions at the same time. But Jonas, thanks for thanks for coming on board. Thanks, Daniel. Um, and just for context, um, 
I'm uh, the general secretary of FIFPRO, so I have to deal with these kinds of questions every now and then more from a, from a cynical perspective rather than the passionate fans perspective. But a couple of things that come to my mind listening to this. The first thing is my son was six years old when he watched his first, like really watched his first World Cup in Russia. And I remember when Germany had, of course, a dismal failure, um, which crushed him a little bit. His response was, so now we can only be world champions again when I'm 10 years old. <laughs> that was a recollection on his mind, which to me says, don't make the World Cup more often because it's such a unique thing. And I think especially for, for young kids growing into this, I think it's just different. Um, but what I was going to, to add was there's, a, there's, of course, a lot of worthy conversation about how you would want to restructure it. And I think actually that there is a scenario in which the, the hyper-commercialization of the club game um, will possibly drive more passion of players international team football again. Um, I think we're seeing this maybe a little bit as a parallel when you look at uh, NBA basketball players um, who live in this very commercialized bubble throughout the year. And then when the Olympics came along, etc., it became a very different thing for them emotionally. And we're even seeing this now when we're discussing with um, the safety protocols for the COVID period and players traveling to the national team. There is still a lot of emotional connection for the players to, to play. And I think that's, you can't underestimate this. Um, but the, the other component to this is that the calendar obviously plays a huge role of what you can do with the game. And if a UEFA was purely a national team competition organizer, they would try to carve out as much space as they could for national team football. But as the per, per annum um, revenue that they're driving by now with the Champions League um, is, by f is far greater than what they would do with the Euros, I just think we're running also into a conflict in which with the increasing pressure of clubs to utilize more space in the calendar, at some point a confederation, a FIFA, almost will have to choose whether they want to protect their club competition match days or their national team competition match days. And I think that's going to exert a lot of pressure on what kind of models can actually function. I think we've already seen that with the, with the Nations League, which, yes, you can argue it's a better competition format, but you could also argue it was the only way of protecting these match days altogether because the friendlies would not have survived the pressure of the clubs to actually release the players. So, yeah, I think there's an interesting dimension. And one thing that I've heard in some corridors, which are maybe not most European and in international football, is this concept of having fewer national team periods but longer ones in which you would have the players together maybe a couple of times a year for a month and where you would play i don't know seven games in a month's time and you would have different ways of well showcasing that broadcasting that um and uh, and selling it obviously so i don't know if that's a direction that may that may become a reality but i can imagine that something like this will come on the table when the 24 and onwards calendar is getting discussed soon Yes, <laughs> some, really, some really good points. I think, I, I think, I think a lot of fans would be in favour of that um, fewer, uh, fewer match or fewer kind of breaks and, and longer breaks if possible, if that could be carved out in the calendar. And I know there's a lot of issues around climate. You know, can, can you have you know more time in the summer? Does that mean you can't play in certain parts of the world? Vice versa, with, with winter. And I, I appreciate that's a challenge. 
I, um, th- you also spoke a little bit about the natural advantages that international football has, which um, one of which is competitive balance. You spoke about the hyper-commercialization of, of club football. International football, in many ways, you know, Brazil can't go and recruit the best Argentinian players or best French players or whoever. England can't do the same. And yes, you're going to have teams kind of tend towards their, their natural level, but you won't get this kind of accelerating effect at the top end of the game that we do have within the club game. And I think there's, there's you know, potentially a lot of excitement built up there within international football that hasn't been um, completely harnessed yet. I may just ask one point, Omar, of you and then um, come to Joseph as well, who I brought up onto the stage too, um, who um, actually is, is at the FA and obviously probably going to be um, certainly a bit circumscribed as what he can say. But I, I've chatted to Joseph at length at loads of times and really enjoy um, chatting to him. But uh, Omar, if I just turn to you first and then I'll go back to, come back to Joseph in a second, which is, well, um, Jonas has sort of mentioned about um, what uh, or, or the ideas about you know, congested international fixture calendar, different incentives. But ultimately, Omar, from your perspective, what do you think can be done? Um, I guess there's two areas to fix international football outside of tournaments or rather fix or to try and liven things up. And that's, I guess, what the Nations League has been done to a degree. But are there particular things that can be done inside of tournaments as well, perhaps? So, um, Joseph, I can just ask to put on you to put on mute as well, just to make sure we get the best sound quality, if that's okay. Um, and then uh, Omar, just over to you at first uh, first instance. Yeah, well, I think Johnny made some really good points around. Um, you know, you're trying to strike a model that satisfies um, big big countries, which ultimately for a UEFA, for a FIFA, for a whoever, are the ones who are generating the revenues um, for those uh, those federations because they're the ones that, that will have the big markets for TV deals. So you need to satisfy those. Uh, but then you've got to satisfy the smaller nations, give them a chance of of competing in, in competitions and, uh, you know, make it to tournaments rather than it just being predictable as well for them. Um, the way we think about it is that there's three pillars towards making a successful competition. So the first one is is quality. Um, you know, fans are pretty smart. They, they can they can smell out quality. And, and if the competition's got high quality, they'll, they'll know it and they'll watch it. And that's part of the problem with international football within between tournaments at the moment is that a lot of players pull out. There's perhaps a feeling sometimes that players aren't playing at their, their optimum. Uh, then there's connection, which I, international football doesn't really have a problem with because you know people have a natural connection to their, to their countries, a much stronger connection to their countries than they would even with their club team. So it's arguably something that the, the competition should leverage more. And that makes me think of, you know, should we go back to home nations championships, which we used to have up until the 1980s and create those kind of rivalries within the UK? And I'm sure similar ones exist in Scandinavia or, or Southern Europe and so on. So is that something that could be kind of harnessed a bit more? Uh, and the last one is jeopardy, which, you know, Johnny, absolutely right. There's jeopardy for Northern Ireland. The issue is that there isn't jeopardy for England. And, and whilst the Nations League um, begins to address it, I suppose the issue with any young tournament is that it just doesn't feel serious until it's been going for a little bit of time. Um, it feels like, uh, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit um, perhaps a bit uh, dismissive of it, but it's almost like those trophies that they hand out at school to, to anyone. And the notion certainly isn't that, um, you know, not anyone can win it, but you know, it feels like a bit of a made-up um, competition. There's no, there's, 
limited so what interestingly actually there is quite a big so what for the smaller nations it gives a great route into into qualifying for tournaments so again it still hasn't quite satisfied um those top teams so i'm going to just leave a question with you omar and then turn to to joseph in a second um and i'll leave you with this question just to ponder omar just for a sec which is then how you know how how does the type of calendar fix this is, is it for example you, you sent me a great article this afternoon that gab marcotti had written based on other ideas that you'd had, which is, do, do we try and actually have a complete structural reformatting, which effectively means that, you know, you have internationals for a month over a season that generates narrative, players less likely to pull out, etc. Could, could that actually work in practice? So I'll just leave that with you for a second, but turn to Joseph for a, um, a sec, just to offer some um, views from, from his perspective. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, think, um, I think the conversation has been really interesting in terms of how you invigorate the international game, but there's probably two things I've noted from my perspective in my time of um, being at the FA. One may be nuanced and specific to England, but I'll kind of just start there. I guess one of the things that we've been working on, I've noticed specifically, is when the fixtures are kind of drawn up for the Nations League or back in the day when we had previous international fixture selection composition, one of the things that's very uncommon in football is becoming less common is the narrative of the fixture. So um, one of the pieces of work I was looking at is how is benchmarking um, international football fixtures and international rugby fixtures and actually looking at how across most of the fixtures there's a narrative created to generate interest and buzz and excitement. So if you, if you take the Six Nations as a domestic or a... United Kingdom plus France and Italy tournament, there's a narrative against every fixture England play. There's a Calcutta Cup, there's a Tri-Nations. There's, some, there's always something to kind of play for. And if you're a lesser team like in Italy, then there's always the biggest thing to play for in terms of avoiding the wooden spoon. So it's how do we generate a narrative between the oppositions that England come across? So, for example, they were due to play... Iceland and due to play Belgium and is it generating a kind of a a theme of a revenge game having Iceland having seen Iceland knocking them at the Euros or Belgium a battle of the Premier League due to the fact you, you have a massive influx of Belgian players playing in the Premier League to kind of generate that interest and hold, how do you also create the interest when it's a lesser opposition so that was that was one of the first things we looked at is how do you generate a kind of competition irrespective of who you draw to be able to bring fans to the stadium and i think secondly um the the bigger point is what is the strategy and objectives of the member associations um the fa the scotch fa etc as well as a higher level uefa caf etc because in between tournaments so outside of the euros the the African Cup of Nations, the Copa Americas, the World Cups. What is the objectives that those nations are trying to get from those fixtures in between? Is it um, is it essentially just plodding through to those major tournaments? Is it an opportunity to recycle new talent? Because till we can kind of come to a general understanding of the strategies of each of those member associations and the UEFA's at of the world, it kind of makes it feel like we're trying to have a a one-size-fits-all model, which then creates a kind of fragmented and disjointed international window, whereby some nations take it seriously in terms of fielding strong opposition, some use their under-21s as a way of bleeding it through, some use a hybrid, 
and as a result, you kind of lose fans comparatively when you look at a league fixture. If Chelsea are playing in the Champions League, fans know that it, unless it's a lesser opposition in the group stage, they're likely to see a full-strength team. Whilst if England are playing Albania and then England are playing Germany, you know straight away that the, the first fixture will have probably a mix of people who are fringe and, and not going to play in the major tournament if that tournament is in tournament year. And if it's a journey, you're more likely to see what the starting eleven will be in a tournament. So those are just my kind of my two thoughts. Yeah, I think I have two really excellent thoughts. I think the first one, especially on, on narrative, you know, it's narrative underpins our enjoyment of all sport. I think more than we maybe care to realise a lot of the time. Um, you know, it's, it's the it's, it's the same reason we enjoy TV shows. The same reason we enjoy other forms of entertainment. We like tracking. You know, we like there to be some kind of meaning associated with games. And that could be meaning beyond, as you say, meaning beyond just the competition itself. But is there some kind of connection that we have with a revenge game or, or whatever? Um, the way the way domestic leagues achieve that obviously is through you know a championship, a league table. So even when you know, Burnley are playing uh, in Newcastle at the bottom of the league. There's a narrative there around this is a scrap for survival. There's there's something that might draw a fan other than those two clubs to watch a game like that. And I think, um, you know, a potential solution is some kind of global league table. You know, if, if the FIFA rankings weren't as opaque, uh, they aren't opaque in the sense that, you know, you can see the, the methodology. But, you know, when you're watching a game, you're not going, oh, if, if England win this, then they jump to third in the rankings you know if they get three points from this game perhaps that's a way of uh, of doing it in the same way when we watch tennis or golf throughout the year you can say okay well if Djokovic wins his tournament he goes to goes to world number one um, so I wonder if that's that's a way of, of doing it and then your other point around you know what are the objectives of these competitions I think is a really good one because you know harking back right to the start of the conversation you know, all these competitions, these federations, friendlies, everything was created 100, 150 years ago uh, with no with no real sense of what the modern game would look like. And I think having to reimagine what those objectives are today will give a lot more focus around, as I say, the types of teams that club select, uh, that national team select, um, you know, the, the way that they manage their squads, the types of players they bring in, all those types of things could be resolved by, by potentially a clearer direction. I think it's a really interesting one on uh, that Omar. So, um, and and Joseph and Jonas and Johnny, a lot of J's going on right now. But um, yeah, thanks very much for for everyone's input. I think ultimately, just to to sum up, and maybe just with a, a minute or two left, Omar, I was just que- curious and querying about you know actually what what is practically possible and what is blue sky thinking possible. Is there based on your experience of, you know, dealing with a lot of stakeholders nationally and internationally, an appetite for that type of change that you see? Um, and is that something going to be novel enough to actually see that type of change in, you know, what can be seen sometimes as relatively conservative organisations, really? Yeah, a million dollar question, I suppose. Um, in football, in my experience, you know, um, you can shoot for the stars, but you'll end up with some kind of compromise down the line. And obviously um, where the, the checks being written will, will form a big part of that. Um, but I don't, you know, we, UEFA achieved the Nations League and other, I think, CONCACAF 
uh, followed suit in that, which which is a relatively revolutionary um, idea for for international football. If we, if, you know, if we consider it's been the same for for many decades. So I think you know I think there's a willingness there. You know, Nash, you've got a huge body there, two hundred plus national associations who have a vested interest in in trying to retain the quality and appeal of of international football. So there isn't there isn't a small group of stakeholders here. Um, or a large group of stakeholders that have competing interests. And there's a lot of aligned interests. I think you know some of the points Joseph made around can can you align objectives? Can you get people on the same page? Um, because then that might help open up what some of these blue sky opportunities into something more realistic. I think a really good place to to finish. Ari, apologies, I haven't got quite round to you that you, you did have your hands up, but I'm sort of conscious that we try and keep this to about half an hour. But um, hopefully, um, we're, I know Omar and I are um, um, a bit busy the next couple of weeks on doing particular projects. But once we get back up and running on this clubhouse, I think I'm not sure your thoughts, Omar, but I think it's been a really just interesting interaction with obviously loads of really great industry people that have, um, that have, that have made some really, really fascinating points overall. Yeah, I completely agree. I'll, I'll, uh, I think we'll be back in three weeks time but certainly on clubhouse stuff i've really enjoyed the chat i think it's been really really interesting and we'll, we'll try and pursue some more blue sky thinking again i think that's great well thanks everyone for joining thanks everyone for their input and um see everyone again soon thanks for listening you can follow me on twitter tiktok and instagram at football law read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website danielg.com forward slash blogs Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundee, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13 which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.